0: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours.
1: I believe in a strong, principled, engaged American global leadership. I think we're safer and richer and better as a country. When we are active on the world stage, and I'm a strong believer that the United States has to have, you know, the greatest military in the world, the greatest intelligence community in the world, the greatest diplomats in the world, the greatest development workers in the world, the freest press, the best universities. We have the capacity to be and and remain all of that if we don't squander it. Uh, And I worry that we're at risk of squandering it.
2: Would you list this as the biggest deficiency of this administration, What you just talked about?
1: What I would list as the the fundamental deficiency is the denigration of our alliance networks and the, the elevation and burnishing of our adversaries. Everything is upside down. Susan Rice served as Barack
2: Obama's national security advisor and as his ambassador to the United Nations. In the Clinton administration, she served as the Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs and as the Senior Director for African Affairs on the NSC staff. Susan just published her memoir titled, Tough Love, My Story of the Things Worth Fighting For. She and I just sat down to talk about her book and the many important issues she raises in it. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Lockheed Martin. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Susan, welcome to the show. It's certainly good to have you on, and it's great to see you.
1: It's good to be with you, Mike.
2: We've been through a few things together, so (laughs) (laughs) we'll talk about that later. You recently published a book. It's called Tough Love, My Story of the Things Worth Fighting For. Let me say first, congratulations. Thank you. I know how tough it. it is to write a book, and you just published a New York Times bestseller. So that's fantastic. As you did. (laughs) I'm just trying to keep
1: up with you, Mike. (laughs)
2: Let me also say to my listeners that it's a terrific read. They should go to the bookstore. They should go online, wherever they buy their books, and they should get themselves a copy. Because when I finished reading it, and, and I'm being very, very honest here, you will not find, I think, a more honest memoir by a national security official. I don't think you'll find a more insightful account of the issues that you went through during your career. And I don't think you'll find a book that offers better insight into what it's really like to be a senior national security official and the impact that that has on your life, both the good, the bad, and the ugly. I appreciate that
1: very much. So my listeners,
2: go buy it. So we chatted in the green room um, of Face the Nation a few Sundays ago, and we talked about interviews for books. And one of the things we talked about was when you do an interview, you very rarely get to talk about the book, right? They're asking you about the issues <laughs> yes. of the day. They're asking you about impeachment. They're asking you about all sorts of things, right? Because right. So we're going to do that They want right? to get that quote, right, from a former <laughs> national security advisor. We're not going to do that. Oh, great. Well, maybe Yay. a couple, couple of questions at the end, okay? But I really want to talk about the book. So maybe the place to start is the title. Can you explain that to the listeners? What does tough love mean?
1: tough love means loving fiercely, but not uncritically. And it's how my parents raised me and my younger brother. It's also how I've tried to raise our kids. And in many ways, also, Michael, it's how I've tried to lead my teams in government and serve our country. When you love somebody fiercely, you ought to be willing to tell them the truth, Uh, whether it's what they want to hear or what they don't want to hear, but they need to hear. And you know, from the time that that I can remember, my wonderful parents were insistent on trying to help me be a better person by telling me the unvarnished truth. And from that experience, uh, from having the benefit of some tough love feedback from colleagues along the way and, and mentors, um, all throughout, I think it's it's made me wiser and, and better. And I've tried to do the same as I've become a leader myself um and when it comes to country as you know as wonderful and an unbelievable a country this is that you and I are both so deeply committed to we are not perfect and we've made mistakes and we will make mistakes and for us to perfect our union we've got to be willing to acknowledge those and and improve on them so i think it was a good summation of many aspects of my personal and professional experience Uh, The subtitle, My Story of the Things Worth Fighting For, really uh, relates to the sub-themes of the book, and in my estimation, family, education, equality um, are critical things worth fighting for, Uh, and in the present context, as I argue at the end of the book, uh, so are our national unity and the strength of our democracy, which I think in, in both instances is under real strain. So I was, Dr. Panetta and I, I
2: don't, I don't know if you remember this, we were on the end of The Tough Love once. Um, <laughs> um,
1: only once? We, once, <laughs> once, once.
2: We had um, an operational <laughs> issue when you were UN ambassador and it was something we wanted to do and you didn't want us to do it. And we met on a Friday here in Washington. That's where you spent your Fridays, if you remember. Yeah. And we met and we didn't have the whole story our team did not tell us the whole story. You had the whole story. And when you asked us about the part of the story that we didn't know about it, we knew at that that, that moment that we had lost the argument. And you said something like, I love you guys, but you should have known this. And that that was a great example, I think, of the tough love. Oh, my
1: goodness.
2: (laughs) So do you think it applies to international relations as well?
1: I do, uh, interestingly. I mean, obviously... Uh, international relations is first and foremost about interests and how interests converge or collide. But um, we do have friends, we have allies, uh, we have partners. And for those relationships to endure, uh, I think it does require at times for countries to to speak difficult truths to each other. And when we fail to do that, I think we see the consequences. A great example is our relationship now with the Saudis.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, you know, the Saudis have many, many uh, imperfections, and, and historically we have, uh, to a large extent, chosen to overlook them, whether on human rights, you know, women's rights, uh, some of their behavior domestically as well as in the region. But, you know, in the most recent years, we've seen egregious examples, uh, not least the murder of Khashoggi, and the United States response has been to sweep it under the carpet. And that relationship is now frayed in many important respects from the private sector to government with Congress on a bipartisan basis trying to change the nature of that relationship and the executive branch resisting and the strains that that is uh, imposing, I think, are uh, only to be revealed in the future. I think and it also quite significant.
2: Si- also sends a signal to other countries that yeah. you can get away with that kind of thing, right?
1: Yeah. So, what do you think? Do you think there's a space for tough love and in absolutely international I relations? I think you know. I think you got
2: to be honest with other countries, right? And not sweep things under the rug and not not talk about them. I think it's really important. Here's something I kept on thinking about as I read the book. This is a memoir. But she's not done yet. I kept on thinking that as I was reading it. <laughs> Anna, we'll she's not done serving her country. So how can this be a memoir? Did you did you think about
1: that as you wrote the book? Yes, but I, I may think I'm more done than you do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one thing I will say about the book is, I, in some ways, it's really not your typical Washington memoir. It's pretty raw and it's pretty personal. Uh, including going back to my parents and grandparents, mm-hmm. my childhood, my parents' divorce, and some of the struggles I've had uh, as, a, as a mother and a daughter and a wife uh, in, in the public spotlight. And I really didn't write this as a book that was intended to support or promote a future endeavor. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit too raw for that. Uh, but it was important for me to tell my story as faithfully and truthfully as I could. And, you know, to the extent that it doesn't reflect well on me or people I love, I, I was fully aware of, of why I wanted to do that. Um, and and I, I think tried to do it pretty unflinchingly. So it's true, I'm, I just turned 55, so I'm not that old. And honestly, as we might discuss, had it not been for Benghazi, Uh, And the fact that in the context of Benghazi and every year subsequently, I continue to be characterized and and mischaracterized on the right and the left, depending what cable channel you Mm -hmm. watch. Uh, I'm a villain. I'm a victim. You know, I'm whatever. None of which bore any relationship to who I am and where I came from and what makes me tick. And so I think I felt a sense of urgency once I left government and was able to speak in my own voice rather than on behalf of the U.S. government or the President of the United States, uh, to tell that story and hopefully impart some experiences and lessons that would be valuable mm-hmm. to, to others. So um, I realized that it's a little early. You know, I could have waited till I was 75. Hopefully I'll, I'll have, <laughs> get there. But I also, frankly, didn't want somebody else to write my story for me before right. I could. Right. And it gets back to a lesson my father taught me, which is don't let others define you for you. And while I was serving, as you know, you know, I didn't have a choice. Right, what can do about that? It's a privilege, huge privilege to serve, and I wouldn't trade it. But it, that was a, a cost.
2: So let's talk a little bit about your family, your background. I think is absolutely fascinating. Your father was descended from slaves in South Carolina. I think mm-hmm. your mother from immigrants. I'm wondering what the conversations were like around your dining room table. <laughs>
1: Well, as I write in the book, at, at a certain stage, around the age of seven or so, they got pretty heated yeah. between my parents who were going through a, a pretty difficult divorce, um, pretty ugly divorce. But interestingly, I mean, my my mother's family, as you mentioned, were uh, originally from Jamaica, and they came to Portland, Maine in 1912. And my grandfather uh, on my mother's side was a janitor, and my grandmother was a maid. They had no formal uh, education and yet they, like so many immigrants, came to this country to try to forge a better life for uh, what would be their children. And they had five of them and saved and scraped and sent all five of their kids to college. Um, two of them, two of my mother's brothers became doctors. Uh, one became an optometrist, the, the fourth a university president. And my All mom, underachievers. All underachievers. <laughs> and my mom, a successful champion of access for higher education for low-income people. She was known as the mother of the Pell Grant program, and then also later in her life, a corporate executive. My father's side of the family, as you said, descendants of of slaves. My great-grandfather was a slave, Walter Rice, uh, and he fought in the Union Army uh, in South Carolina. And after the war, through uh, the good offices of uh, one of his uh, commanding officers, he was able to get an education and ultimately a college degree at Lincoln University in Pennsylvania and then went on to to found a school in New Jersey that for 70 some years from the late 1880s to the 1950s, educated generations of African-Americans. So I come from a family where education was hugely important, upward mobility, uh, what I call in the book, a compulsion to rise and an expectation that, you know, we all had some significant blessings, Mm -hmm. even as, you know, we may in some instances have begun poor um, to give back. And so the debates at my dinner table, I mean, we fought, we argued, we talked about, you know, the issues of the day, Watergate, Vietnam, uh, the civil rights movement, race, politics. Uh, I grew up here in Washington, D.C., and my parents were determined that my brother and I really face the world in which we are living. So in 1968, I'm four years old, my brother's barely two, and Washington, the 14th Street Corridor has burned down after Dr. King was assassinated. And my parents took us down and, and me walking and my brother in a stroller to see the destruction and to visit the Poor People's Campaign and to understand, you know, that this was a complicated world. And so we really did grow up discussing and debating the issues of the day. And we're raised with a responsibility to engage those issues, not to be simply a bystander.
2: So, Susan, you've been very successful at everything that you've done.
1: I'm not sure. Um, No, you have, you have,
2: you have. You rose rapidly in your chosen profession. And you're a black woman. And you're young. Last I checked. And you're young. (laughs) I know your parents... I was young, not anymore. And I know your parents had to deal with racism and discrimination. I'm wondering if you ever felt the hands of discrimination holding you back, either because of race, gender, or age.
1: Absolutely. Uh, and I don't, I don't know anybody uh, who looks like me who can say, if they're being honest, that they haven't experienced that. But I'd qualified, by saying I've I've, I've felt like there have been efforts to hold me back because of the gift my parents gave me and my brother of teaching us to believe in ourselves and to fight for ourselves and to, as my dad often said, don't take crap off of anybody. You know, I, as conscious as I was of people who might resist or resent me, I didn't, and this was quite difficult, I didn't let it inform my own sense of who I am. And so yes, I mean there 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 were times when, particularly, in the earlier stages of my career, when I was a young Assistant Secretary of State, uh, thirty-two years old, responsible for the African continent and all of our our embassies, and and I was working with people twenty to thirty years my senior, um, who were career officers, who were quite skeptical of my youth, uh, and perhaps uh, of my of my worthiness to be in that role. I faced more than uh, my share of, of resistance. And I, it's hard to know Michael, whether to ascribe it more to race or to gender or to youth. And and frankly, in that context, I think I'd prioritize youth, mm. but also I was a brand new mother of, a, and I was breastfeeding my three month old son in the state department. There were all kinds of ways. All, kinds, <laughs> all kinds of issues. I, I was not the typical <laughs> assistant secretary. Um, And yet, my parents taught me that you either persevere uh, and do your best and don't accept others' definitions of you, or uh, you let the bigots win. And so, to me, it really wasn't a choice. And the other thing I would say is that I had far fewer uh, obstacles than I had supporters and mentors who really supported and lifted me up, and, you know, from... Former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright to former national security advisors Tony Lake and Sandy Berger, my first immediate boss in government, Richard Clark, uh, the famous or infamous counterterrorism yes, 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 are yes, I know him these well. are all people who you know didn't need to take an interest in me mm-hmm. uh, but but did and and helped me help me to grow and to learn even at a very young age.
2: You know, this is not a question I wrote down here, but it just jumped into my head. When I did my book tour, I was struck at the questions that I got about President Obama. And they were tinged with racism. There's no doubt in my mind. I remember calling Dennis when I got back from one of my book tours and and telling him that. Did you sense or do you sense that some of the struggles that President Obama had were because... Of race,
1: as president, yeah. I think some. I don't think you can pretend that there there wasn't that element to it. Um, <clears throat> I don't think it would be fair to to say that was the predominant source of his the resistance he faced. I think it was primarily political, uh, partisan politics, and the effort to minimize the success of uh, a president of the opposing party. But, you know, I'd be interested to you to elaborate on on what you heard, but I think there there remains a segment of society that believes that black people are inferior and that they don't deserve uh, to hold positions of responsibility. And I think, you know, I think it's also fair to say that in some hopefully relatively narrow segment of our uh, populace, the fact that not only... He was twice elected, but served with distinction and without scandal, and you know was a a, a, a paragon of a happy family man, yeah. responsible and committed yeah. to his wife and children. You know, it was hard for some people to stomach
2: without scandal for eight years. By the way, that's that's saying something in today's world.
1: So tell me more about what you heard on as you were going around. And what it was what just uh, it was
2: questions about. Please tell us that he's not trying to weaken the country through his foreign policies. That was a not infrequent question. And they wanted the answer to be, they wanted the answer to be yes, he is weakening the country. It was never a question I got about George Bush, the other president I worked very closely with. So there was this contrast between the questions and the way
1: they were asked. And was that in? And you ascribe that to race because the implication was that somehow he had questionable loyalty. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 I wonder what you'd be hearing now if you were. (laughs) No, I know
2: it'd be kind of fun. (laughs) So your interest in international affairs—where did that come from?
1: It's interesting. I didn't expect until really my mid to late 20s, that this might be my field. I always knew growing up here in Washington that I cared deeply about public policy. Uh, and, you know, I was very lucky in, even in high school to be able to work during my summers on Capitol Hill. Uh, I was a page. I was an intern. But my focus had been on domestic issues, things like, you know, uh, employment opportunities, uh, education, things that that contributed to a quest for greater equality. And when I was in college at Stanford, I was a history major, and my expectation was that I'd go to law school after uh, graduation and eventually um, practice some form of public interest law and maybe run for a political office with a domestic focus. And then I, uh, in my senior year, was fortunate to receive a Rhodes Scholarship that allowed me to study for at least two years in the UK at Oxford University. And then my expectation was I'll do two years and then I'll continue on to law school. And in those two years, I thought, well, let me study something that I haven't really focused on that much. Let me study international relations because my thought was, you know, if I eventually wanted to serve in elective office, you know, I shouldn't be a complete ignoramus (laughs) about the world (laughs) at large, even though that seems to be, a radical thought these days and I was going to be living overseas and that would be a great opportunity to to do so and so I did I did my master's degree in international relations for two years and I fell in love with the subject and decided to to stay and do my PhD which required almost another two years um and so I left Oxford with a PhD in international relations and decided along the way that I really didn't want to go to law school which I never did um and, you know, I had a, a series of of, of career uh, sort of forks in the road. My first job after uh, graduate school was uh, in management consulting, and then I had the opportunity to uh, to work in the the brand new Clinton White House, and was offered a choice: do you, Do you want to work on the National Security Council staff, or do you want to work on the National Economic Council staff? It was a I was extraordinarily hmm. lucky to have that choice. And I wrestled with it, uh, but chose national security, strangely calculating in my own ignorance that because I wasn't really sure where I wanted to land, if I wanted to make the transition from national security to domestic policy, that would somehow be easier, easier than, going than the, the other, other way. way. Yeah, and that was the basis on which I did it. And one thing led to another, and I liked it, and, and I found it really interesting and challenging. And next thing you know, it was my career.
2: A lot of the kids I deal with today various guises, whether in classes or mentoring them, they want to have a plan, right? Everything's planned out. And it exactly. sounds like you didn't have a
1: plan. Well, I, I, I didn't have a set plan that I was unprepared to deviate from. You know, I, I have a kid in college now uh, and one of, on her way eventually. And I see that same thing. Like people are very uncomfortable with not knowing exactly where they're trying to get to. And I always try to underscore to the students I work with at American University or up at Harvard, that, you know, you got time. And you, what you don't want to do is be so set in a, in a track that you can't seize opportunities that right. you hadn't anticipated. Right. My yeah. whole story is about opportunities I hadn't anticipated right. that I chose to, to test. Yeah.
2: My daughter's going to kill me for saying this, but when she was in college, she updated her life plan every Friday. <laughs> <laughs> And has she stuck to it? <laughs> um, I think she's deviated from it, but she continues to plan, but not as often. <laughs> Susan, how would you describe your your worldview, particularly with regard to the U.S. role in the world?
1: I'm a strong believer uh, in the critical importance of American leadership um, and our uh, unique, and I, I would even use the word that some like and some hate, indispensable uh, ability to move other countries in partnership with us to accomplish important objectives. Now, we're in a moment, which I hope is only a moment, where that capacity is in question and has been deliberately uh, undermined by the president himself. But I believe in a strong, principled, uh, engaged American global leadership. I think we're safer and richer and better as a country when we are active on the world stage, when we are actively promoting our interests and values. I'm a pragmatist, uh, but I hope uh, a principled pragmatist. And I'm a strong believer that the United States has to have, you know, the greatest military in the world, the greatest intelligence community in the world, the greatest diplomats in the world, the greatest development workers in the world the freest press, uh, the, you know, uh, uh, the best universities. We have the capacity to be and and remain all of that if we don't squander it. Uh, And I worry that uh, we're at risk of squandering it. So I agree with you
2: 100%, but that view is being challenged, right? Yeah. So how do you make the case, right? When you're traveling around the country on your book tour, how do you make the case to people that they're better off right if they're in akron ohio which is where i'm from or they're in detroit or they're in st louis how do you make the case that it's in their interest for the u.s to be engaged in the world the way you're talking
1: well first of all let me just say as a matter of you know of data <laughs> such as there is data you know and i know that the the chicago council on on uh, global affairs does an annual survey of attitudes American attitudes towards the world and our leadership in the world, uh, and there's is because it's an annual survey and with high quality uh, methodology, it's a pretty interesting barometer of how those views change. And despite what you might think, uh, the vast majority of Americans understand and, and are committed to strong American leadership, a strong alliance network, even free trade. Um, so the the public attitudes aren't as isolationist as, um, as we might suspect in the moment. But having said that, and what I argue is look at the nature of the world we're living in today. This is not the 17th century or the 19th century. We are absolutely wholly integrated economically and from a security point of view with the rest of the world. There's nothing that happens, even in the most remote corners of the world, that doesn't have the potential to affect Americans here at home. Whether it's the rise of a terrorist organization, uh, you know, the proliferation of, of dangerous weapons, a pandemic flu or other disease, the the comp, uh, the consequences of climate change, all of these things that we need to worry about, cyber threats, you name it, are Almost inherently now transnational, in their origins and in their implications. So, what happens in you know Burkina Faso, mm-hmm. believe it or not, can ultimately have ramifications for people in Akron. Um, and the only way we can effectively combat those kinds of threats, or even traditional state threats like you know that rising from China or Russia, is with the active and willing cooperation and effective cooperation of other countries and partners. This is not a world where we can bomb a disease or you know, a, uh, even a terrorist cell into submission. Um, we don't have the capacity acting alone, even when we're at our strongest, to thwart these kinds of threats unilaterally. So we need others to want to join with us. The only way to make others want to join with us is to be... A player where they understand that there's mutual benefit uh, to our cooperation and that there's, you know, merit in wanting to be seen to work with the United States. And that requires active, principled leadership based on our interests and based on our values. And it means bringing others to join us in tackling these challenges, whether it's, you know, a revanchist, you know, aggressive Russia uh, or it's, you know, the... Biosecurity threat. Would you
2: list this as the biggest deficiency of this administration? What you just talked about.
1: What I would list is the the fundamental deficiency is the denigration of our alliance networks and the the elevation and and you know burnishing of our adversaries. Everything is upside down um, for reasons that we still don't fully understand. Right. And right. uh, we have a President who seems far more interested in coddling and supporting and validating adversaries who happen to be dictators, whether it's Putin or uh, Xi uh, Kim or Jong-un. Kim Jong-un, than he does in supporting and embracing our traditional treaty allies or even you know our our friends. And that weakens our capacity to bring countries to our side. I mean, we work together through issues, you know, of, of all sorts, um, counterterrorism, you know, the Ebola epidemic, you know, dealing with the Iran nuclear threat. Not one of those issues could be addressed effectively right. without our allies. Right. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our
2: sponsor, and we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Susan Rice.
0: What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along
2: the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard... We think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Susan, let me ask you about some of the issues that you were involved in during your career, get you to talk a bit about how they were handled then, and then what you think you learned from them in retrospect. And maybe the place to start is Somalia in the aftermath of Black Hawk Down.
1: Well, this is 1993. I'm a 28-year-old staffer on the NSC, uh, National Security Council. My portfolio, my job was to be the junior staffer responsible for the United Nations and peacekeeping. And so I had a sort of front row seat, uh, though not a real decision-making role, when it came to uh, Somalia and and. Subsequently, Rwanda, Bosnia, Haiti, all all these uh, challenges of that era. And what was so striking to me in the moment, but also in retrospect, on Somalia, and I'd be interested if you have a perspective on this from your time. We had, you know, over 20,000 or approximately 20,000 U.S. uh, servicemen and women, I presume, deployed in Somalia in what had become a hot combat situation, having morphed from a humanitarian intervention. And the national security principles, the cabinet-level officials who, as you and I know, are supposed to sit around that table in the, in the situation room and wrestle with the most important issues, wasn't really engaged on Somalia. The deputies were, uh, but until we lost our 18 servicemen, Uh, on October 3rd, 1993, the principals really weren't grasping that issue as theirs. And once the tragedy hit, the president, then Clinton, was under enormous pressure uh, from a democratically controlled Congress to withdraw our forces precipitously from Somalia, cut and run at great detriment both to the mission and to our standing and to our counterterrorism uh, interests. And uh, we just were playing catch-up. So one of the key lessons I learned from that experience was the importance of the senior-most officials remaining hands-on and engaged when we have U.S. military personnel deployed in, in you know, hot combat situations or those that have the potential to become that and not wait for a crisis for that kind of uh, care and attention. The other thing I learned is how counterproductive, on occasion, Congress's intervention can be in national security. Now, we've seen it work in positive ways on other occasions, but Congress really pulled the rug out from under uh, a new president and compelled us to withdraw the military uh, from Somalia, I think prematurely. And so, you know, seeing how the, you know, seeing how Congress can parachute in with very little knowledge and a lot of uh, impact and forced decisions that may not be in the national interest was another key lesson. So
2: I was working on Asia at the time. And one of the things that struck me was the lesson that the Chinese took from our withdrawal. the chinese said to themselves the united states of america is not willing to spill blood they are weak now that turned out to be a wrong assessment right given what we did in the aftermath of 9 11. but sometimes we don't think about the impact that what we do has outside of the narrow issue that we're looking at right
1: and it also sent a message to terrorists like Mohammed adid who was the uh, the the, the clan leader who was responsible for shooting down those helicopters. That, you know, the way to get America out out of your territory if you don't want them there is to, to spill some spill blood. Spill some blood, yeah.
2: The genocide in Rwanda.
1: Six months after uh, Black Hawk down, one week after Congress had ordered the last Americans uh, to leave Somalia, as you'll recall, and uh, we're in early April, 1994, the plane carrying the presidents of Rwanda and Burundi were shot down. The plane was shot down. Uh, and the genocide ensued, very carefully orchestrated planned genocide that within 90 days or so resulted into up to 1 million lives lost. Again, I had a front row seat, uh, though not a decision-making role on that, um, horrific uh, tragedy and what struck me again was that we were so I would guess I'd say paralyzed by and, and traumatized by the experience of Somalia that you know we did the the normal things that you do in a crisis like that you know you get your people out of uh, harm's way you know you you vote in the security council etc but we never actually considered the question of whether the united states or the united states working with others or the united states enabling others should intervene to try to stop the killing now i'm not necessarily here to argue that the answer should have been yes mm-hmm although I think you could make a case for that. Um, But what I did learn is that the failure to even confront the question at any stage, the failure of the Congress to call the question, the failure of any editorial page in this country of any note to raise the issue of should the United States do something to stop the killing before it was too late, never never arose. And so the lesson I took from... Rwanda, that took many lessons, but the critical lesson was that we have to call the question. And we have to force decision makers to weigh the risks and the benefits of action or inaction, because they both have huge costs and consequences, as you and I know. Do you think the question wasn't called because it was in the middle of Africa? I think the question wasn't called because it was unthinkable, literally unthinkable. And therefore, nobody thought about it to consider putting U.S. forces back into an even more remote part of Africa that nobody had ever heard of after Somalia, literally seven days, as I said, mm-hmm. after the last American forces were, you know, innobly re- removed from Somalia. So I think it, that, yes, it was because it was Africa, but that it was more than that. It was just, you know, it was, we'd just gotten badly burnt. So nobody was thinking about putting their hands back in the fire.
2: So let's jump forward then to the Obama administration and let me ask you about two issues. One is the intervention in Libya. How did you think about that then? How do you think about it now?
1: So I write, as you know, at some length in the book about Libya and uh, both the process we underwent in the situation room to make a judgment about whether or not the United States should act with allies to try to prevent Gaddafi from slaughtering tens of thousands as he was about to do in Benghazi, uh, the second largest city in Libya, in the middle of this Arab spring uprising in Libya. And I was among those who argued that we should intervene. Um, And by intervene in that case, what it meant was using our air power, with other NATO countries and Arab countries, with the authorization of the United Nations, which I worked to obtain as UN ambassador, uh, to prevent Gaddafi from the air, from moving his military columns into Benghazi and to protect civilians. We got the authority from the Security Council to do it. We had the support of our allies. And I argued we should do it because I assessed that the risks to our the uh, interests were significant if Qaddafi were allowed to, to kill with impunity, and uh, that the costs to the United States were relatively low. It wasn't going to involve a ground combat operation. Uh, it was a relatively finite endeavor, and it enabled us to, to save substantial numbers of lives using um a unique American capacity, which was our overwhelming air power. So I supported it. I think, as I write in the book, uh, our failure came in the aftermath, uh, after Gaddafi was removed. And the failure was uh, a lack of attention and investment of time and resources into the question of how do we help Libya build a stable post-Qaddafi society when it had no government institutions and no experience with, you know, anything other than one-man rule. And it's a a failure that I think lies at the hands of the United States, but also the European partners, the United Nations, the Africans and the Arabs, who all had a stake in, in Libya's future. And I think, honestly, Mike, I'd be interested in your sense on this. I think because there were we were divided as a government going into that decision. The president Obama had to make a tough call: do we do it or not do it? And he basically half of his team said yes, and the other half said no. I've never seen the room
2: more split than it was on that occasion.
1: Uh, I think the the people who'd thought it was a bad idea weren't interested Mm. in. and spending much time on the problem thereafter. That's a polite way to put it. It's not that they wanted to sabotage the outcome. I just think it was a question of, you know, this was not something they were committed to, not something they wanted really to do. Okay, we did it. We're done. Bye. Uh, And I think, you know, as we've learned the hard way in so many other contexts, including now Libya, you know, you you break it, you buy it to some extent. And we weren't buying, you know, the responsibility of building the Libyan nation, but we could have and I think should have in those early months been more hands-on. And then Benghazi happens a year later. And, you know, Washington is like, you know, have, wants to have nothing to do with Libya at that point, uh, and not just within the administration. And it wasn't really until uh, the president's second term and arguably, you know, a new team. I came down as national security advisor. We had Secretary Kerry. We had Hegel. It was a different team didn't have that sort of same hangover. Right. And the president had a sense of urgency about trying to, you know, put Humpty Dumpty back together if we could. And so we we finally, belatedly, I think, devoted a level of effort and attention that was more commensurate with the challenge. But I think it was too late. Yeah. And so we'll never know, uh, in my judgment, whether or not had we tried early enough with sufficient effort and energy, whether we could have made a difference. Yeah. Um, we're not going to, we will never know, but we know we didn't, I believe we know we didn't try.
2: And I think there is, I wrote about this in my book. I think there's a intelligence community failure here too, not to lay it all on the intelligence community, but we never wrote a piece for you guys, a memo, whatever you want to call it. We never put in front of you a piece of paper that said the aftermath is going to be extraordinarily difficult. Here's why. Right, And here's all the things, all the challenges that you're going to face in the aftermath. We didn't do that.
1: Before, the decision, or Before at any, the decision or at any point, really? At any
2: point, right? That just didn't happen. Maybe the toughest of it all, toughest one of all... Syria. Syria. So our limited intervention in Syria. And every single senior Obama administration official I've had on this show has said, I think, about this a lot.
1: I think we've all agonized over it. I... Uh, I deal with this in, at some length, as you know, um, in tough love, and I really think that we have to be disciplined about recognizing there, there are three aspects to the Syria challenge that we faced. The easiest one came later, which was uh, after the rise of ISIS and the question of whether or not the United States and allies should intervene to to try to defeat ISIS in Syria and Iraq. President Obama saw that essentially as a no brainer. The answer was yes. And we've been fighting that fight uh, until recently. Second question, which was harder, that we wrestled with, was when uh, Assad employed chemical weapons in 2013 and crossed the president's so-called red line, should the president have struck, as we, using military force, uh, in a limited fashion, to punish a side for using chemical weapons without congressional authorization. President Obama, as you'll recall, was ready to, to right. do it right. uh, and decided close to the 11th hour that it would be wiser to, to seek congressional approval first in order to um, give us flexibility, which frankly, as you'll recall, we didn't really have in Libya legal flexibility in case that initial set of military strikes evolved into a more sustained commitment. Um, I, as you may remember, was the only principal, s- senior fir- person at the table, who argued that we should not wait for congressional authorization. We shouldn't bother to get it, because I didn't think we could get it. Uh, mine was not a policy judgment in that moment, more as a political judgment. And of course, as a national security advisor, I'm not supposed to be the political expert Especially when you have, you know, four sitting senators at the table or yes. former senators yeah, at the yeah, table, yeah. Um, so president made the decision to um, to seek congressional authorization. We didn't get it. We went on with the president's leadership to negotiate with the Russians and the Syrians and the UN um, the removal and the destruction of 1,300 metric tons of chemical weapons, which we thought at the time was the bulk of the stockpile. And then, of course, you know we saw in 2017 and 2018 that chemical weapons were used again and Trump struck using Obama's target list and had one night of, you know, of military uh, strikes, which I supported in that moment. Uh, but nothing changed. Whatever chemical weapons were there still are there and probably more. So that resulted in zero being removed and destroyed. So in my judgment, both were unsatisfactory outcomes because whatever was there is still there yeah. and probably more. Yeah. The third issue, and this was the hardest one, as you know, is to what extent should the United States get involved on the side of the Syrian opposition to topple Assad? And we, as you know, as well as anybody, we wrestled with that ad nauseum for years Uh and, you know, this was another issue that divided us as as principals. There were those who thought we ought to get more actively involved, you know, no-fly zones, safe zones, striking Assad's air force. And there were others who thought that the risks and uh, and the costs outweighed the benefits. But nobody believed that, you know, what was happening in Syria was acceptable from any perspective, humanitarian, strategic or what have you. I actually was in the same place then and now as President Obama, taking the view that at the end of the day, we should not get directly militarily involved against Assad uh, because I didn't think that was going to be a limited engagement like Libya, but a long term, costly ground commitment, more like what we had to do to remove Saddam Hussein. And I didn't think, given all that we had. Going on in Afghanistan, Iraq, elsewhere, that this was um, a wise uh, commitment of our resources, but obviously came at a huge cost. Right. And, you know, largely borne by the Syrian people. Largely borne by the Syrian people and also by Syria's neighbors, uh, and even arguably, arguably by Europe. And I don't know anybody who worked intensively on that issue that feels good about the outcome.
2: Let me ask you a few questions about Benghazi, which enveloped both of us. We could actually talk about it for hours, probably. But just three quick questions. You know, in my mind, Susan, this was raw, winner-take-all, ugly politics. You know, in my view, all designed to undermine the president and to weaken Secretary Clinton's chances of being elected president, which I think at the end of the day, it turned out that it played a role in that. At the time... As I look back on it now, it, it sort of foreshadowed the ugly politics of today. sure did. And I wonder if you kind of look at it from the perspective of this being the first data point in this new politics that we live in.
1: I don't know if it's the first, but it's a big data point. And we weren't able to see it as such in the moment. I mean, Benghazi looks like patty cake compared to right. what we're dealing with now. Uh, and, you know, you and I both w- were for a sustained period and, and arguably still are in the crosshairs over that. Um, and yet, you and I were senior officials, uh, in my case, Senate confirmed, and, you know, political, and political appointees, and and, and therefore arguably, knew what we were getting ourselves into. Today, this politics of personal destruction, which I think, you know, sadly, I experienced in in my limited way, is being meted out by the president of the United States against almost unknown civil servants, career officials who never signed up for the public spotlight. And their character, their careers, their integrity is being maligned and impugned in the same way that ours was. And certainly mine was. Um, and, you know, it's just, it's exponentially worse. Right. When I ask to uh, ask about family as well. You
2: and I both know that false accusations have impacts on family. You write about it very honestly in the book specifically the impact on your daughter. Was that a tough decision?
1: To write about it? Mm-hmm. Uh, no. Uh, I had to write about it. And I had to get, obviously, her permission. By the way, this is her uh, 17th birthday today. Oh,
2: happy birthday.
1: <laughs> and she's doing great. So that's where I'll begin this story. Uh, happy, healthy, successful uh, high school student. But she was nine at the time. And, uh, she began say six weeks after I'd appeared on the Sunday shows to complain that she was seeing images of men coming at her out of walls. If she'd be in the classroom at school in third grade or at a sleepover at a friend's house and, or even in her own bedroom. And and she was in effect hallucinating. And obviously her dad and I were completely freaked out, um, And we took her to Children's Hospital here in Washington. And for a couple of weeks, they put her through a battery of tests they were trying to figure out is the most likely explanations were brain tumor, some kind of psychosis or schizophrenia, perhaps a vision problem. Um, And they, you know, eventually ruled out all those worst case scenarios and were left sort of by process of elimination with the conclusion that she was in all likelihood having a stress reaction. To what was happening to me, and these you know this went on for months and months, and my husband and I realized that you know we had failed to understand that a television in the background that we were able to tune out was really hard to process for a kid at that age, and all she knew was that her mother was being attacked, and that was how she reacted um, it It was infuriating and uh, of all the things that I want to share about that experience, and I talk about it, the effect on my mom too, who was quite ill. I want people to understand that this politics of personal destruction that we've become so accustomed to in Washington uh, doesn't just target the individual who, you know, opponents are trying to take down, it affects everybody who loves them, everybody who works with them, people who didn't sign up for this kids, elderly people. Right. And it has a cost, a human cost. And so once my daughter agreed to let me include that, uh, I, was, I wanted to do so.
2: Susan, let me ask you one more question. You've been amazing with your time here. So you say something in your book that I think is absolutely 100% on the mark, which is that the biggest threat we face is not from overseas. It's our broken political system.
1: Our domestic um, political our divisions. Domest-
2: yes. How concerned are you about that? Is is our democracy at risk? How
1: do you think about that? I'm deeply concerned about it. Um, and yes, I do think our democracy is at risk. But at the end of the day, as I also write in the last chapter of the book called Bridging the Divide, where I sort of <laughs> delve into... This whole question of how our divisions are uh, constitute a threat and the kinds of steps that we can take to address them, um, I end up at a point of optimism because I'm a student of history in in, in many respects, and if you look back over the course of our uh, existence as a nation, we've been through multiple periods of far more stark and, and, and violent divisions from the civil war to reconstruction, you know, the the experience of, of two world wars followed by McCarthyism, the Vietnam era where students were being shot on our campuses, the civil rights era where people like me had dogs sicked on them and water hoses and our cities burnt down due to rioting. That's not where we are today. And, Through each of those extraordinary periods of challenge, we emerged whole and arguably stronger. Stronger. And so I say really the last lines of the book is nobody's ever won by betting against the United States of America's long-term capacity to grow and change and renew itself. And they'd be foolish to start now. And i believe ever, that and nobody's ever won betting against human freedom at the end of the day at the end of the day that's exactly right but we've got huge amounts of work to do and we've got you know our ability to beat this challenge depends on a will to do it and a sense of urgency and recognition that you know, these divisions are doing above all russia's job for them the russians every day are through social media through all of their disinformation and information campaigns are trying to weaken us from within and exacerbate these divisions and cause us to hate each other and fear each other and turn on each other, uh, whether through violence or just through completely discrediting our, our national cohesion and integrity and doubting the, the viability of our institutions. And so when the president talks about fake news and denigrates the intelligence community and law enforcement and diplomats and now uniformed military officials and uh, embraces the conspiracy theories uh, of Vladimir Putin, we're in a tough spot and we've got to confront it. And I talk about in the book a whole range of things we can do from the personal individual level. And i experience these personal these political divisions in my own family i have a very very conservative son so do i by the way i don't know how that happened (laughs) (laughs) i got a very progressive daughter and i've got a husband and who sits with me in the middle trying to keep food from flying at the table um but uh you know we've got things we can do individually and personally we've got things we can do in terms of how we educate our children and teach civics and teach civil discourse Uh, There are things we can do to reform our political system that would eliminate the power of the extremes or reduce the power of the extremes. And then I threw out some pretty uh, provocative ideas, including mandatory national civilian service for everybody in this country, 18 to 22, to spend 6 to 12 months Working with people from vastly different backgrounds, living with people from vastly different backgrounds, doing things that benefit all of us, whether it's reforestation or laying broadband or what have you. And I I suggest that as costly and uh, dramatic a step as it might be, because I really believe that it's very hard to hate somebody when you actually know them. And that's the kind of step we need to be willing to contemplate if we're going to beat this moment.
2: Susan, thank you for taking so much time to be with us. The author is uh, Susan Rice. The book is My Story of the Things Worth Fighting For. Thank you you so much, Michael. That was Susan Rice. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters.
0: This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio.